Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How do you reach young people for the faith and then keep them in the faith? As many of you know, you've listened to this program before. There is quite an epidemic. It's been going on for quite a while. Young people walk away from the church once they leave the home, even sometimes before they leave the home. And parents and youth pastors and pastors and just people in general don't know what to do about it. How can you practically engage young people so, A, they know Christianity is true, and B, they're less likely to walk away when they're given the opportunity? Well, there's probably not two better men uh, out there who can advise us on that than my friends Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell. You know them both because they've been on this program before, and not only have they been on this program before, I'm sure you've listened to them. I know Jay has a, a podcast. Sean has a number of books out and has been around for quite a while doing apologetics to youth. He's the go-to guy for youth in my mind. And so they've teamed up together on a new book. It's called So the Next Generation will know. The subtitle is Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. It couldn't be a more timely book, and nor could it be a more practical book, because there are just real-world ideas, real-world strategies, real-world tactics that you can use with your young person to not only uh, get them in the faith, but keep them in the faith. And if you're a young person, you want to read this book as well, particularly if you're a Christian and you want to reach other people your age, because there are some things going on in your generation you, you might not be aware of. And Sean and and uh, Jay and Jim have done the research on this, so it can be very, very helpful. So so let me just start with Jim. Jim, you, uh, you were an atheist, actually, uh, growing up until you were about 35 years old. How did that experience experience help you write this particular book? Well, I think part of it was when I became a Christian, um, I just saw the world. I just, I, first of all, I'm very, very patient with my own kids growing up uh, because number one, I didn't raise them in the earliest years to be Christians. And I saw my own conversion at the age of 35. So I typically am a little less uptight about the status of where people are. Uh, in their life, because if you'd ask people who knew me at the age of 34 if Wallace was ever going to become a Christian, most of the guys I worked with, the, the cops and detectives I worked with, would all have unanimously said, some people might someday become Christians, but that guy is not one of them. <laughs> and yet here I am. So I, I think it is important, though, that we understand this generation faces unique a unique situation globally, a unique situation historically that would shape the way and should shape the way we interact with them. Now, Sean, uh, I've heard you say this before, and you actually have it in the book. And again, the book is called So the Next Generation Will Know. Your father is the world-famous Josh McDowell. Now, you have your own PhD. You're not just riding off of his coattails. But there was a time in your life when you went to your dad and said, you know, Dad, I don't even know if what you're saying is true. I don't know if I share your faith. How did he react, and why was that instructive for you? Uh, in your faith journey? Well, I was about 
about 19 years old, a uh, student at, a, at Biola University, interestingly enough, and got online and just started reading all these skeptics and atheists, some of whom are my friends now and have told me that really a lot of the secular web began responding to some of my dad's material. Mm-hmm. And I thought someone wasn't a Christian growing up because they just hadn't read like more than a carpenter or evidence demands a verdict. Like, how hard is it? There's the evidence. Right. And then I come across these really thoughtful doctors and lawyers and scientists saying Christianity's false. And it was unsettling to me. And I don't think I ever stopped believing, but it was kind of that moment a lot of kids have like, do I believe this? Is this true? Can I bank my life on it? And we were in Breckenridge, Colorado. I just told my dad, I'm like, hey, can we get coffee? I want to share something with you. And I just remember looking at him saying, Dad, I want to know it's true, but I'm not sure I'm convinced this is totally true. And he just looked at me. I mean, you know, my dad, he's like mm-hmm. the consummate optimist. <laughs> and he, he just says, he goes, son, I, I think that's great. And I just remember thinking, like, did you hear anything that I just said? He goes, no, I think it's great because I raised you to love truth. You can't live on my convictions. You got to decide for yourself what you think is true. If you really seek truth, I'm convinced you'll keep believing in Jesus because Jesus is the truth and kind of said, you know, your mom and I will love you no matter what. And I think that as looking back, especially, I always knew my parents loved me. That was never in doubt. But in that moment, that's really what I needed to hear. Just a reminder that, hey, our love for you is not based upon what you believe or what you spend your life on. We love you as our son. And I think just freed me up both emotionally and intellectually to say, okay, is this true? Do I believe it? And am I going to bank my life on it? Mm. And your dad did not freak out or anything. I remember you saying that he just said, well, that's great, son. And as long as you go along your journey, would you just, would you just um, guarantee me one thing that you'll find that you'll follow the truth wherever it leads. And you said, absolutely. And now you're one of the top apologists in the world. You have a PhD. You're teaching at Biola University. What do you think would have happened if he had freaked out on you? Well, that's it's hard to speculate because yeah. obviously God is sovereign. Right. You know, but from a, a human standpoint, one of the reasons I wanted to go into ministry and write and speak is because my parents never pressured me. Hmm. I don't remember once. My dad's saying, hey, son, you'd be a good writer. Hey, son, you'd be a great speaker. Hey, you should do this. I don't remember it once. The narrative I remember was essentially something in effect of, son, God's given you a lot of gifts. Just use it to glorify God and build his kingdom. Mm. However you do that, we're proud of you and God is proud of you. And I think that narrative, just kind of like Jim said a minute ago, you know, having that freedom with his kids to come in their faith at the time they're open and God is working with them, of course, that's different in his experience than mine, but my parents kind of had that approach. And the other thing my dad did, if I could mention briefly, I mean, this book is full of things that we learn and did well, and, you know, some failures as well. We try to do both in this book. But one of the other things my dad did well is he had practiced in his mind all the conceivable conversations us kids would have with him. So if my sister came up and said, hey, dad, I'm pregnant, how would he respond? Mm. Or if I said, hey, dad, I don't, you know, I'm not even going to college or dad, I got caught in cheating or dad, I I decided to smoke pot. Like he had practiced how he would respond because when we don't, that's when we freak out and often say things that can hurt a relationship. So there's just a lot of wisdom there. And that's what we try to do in the book. Like here's some really practical ways to minister to this generation. 
And the book does it very well. The book is called So the Next Generation Will Know. I can guarantee you this, parents, if you freak out whenever your kids come to you with a difficult issue, how often do you think they're kind of going to come back to you with a difficult issue? They're going to shy away from you. You don't want that. You want them to feel comfortable coming to you with anything. Now, Jim, you had a different upbringing. How did you actually come to faith? Because you were not brought up in a Christian home. Well, for me, it was evidential because that's the only way I knew to get anywhere. As I, you know, you, you, you assess a claim, you decide if it, you look at the evidence for that claim, you decide if, if, if yes or no is the most reasonable inference from evidence. And so this is what we do in jury trials. That's what I did. It turns out that young people of this generation, because they're digital natives, yeah. they have got access to the information age in a way that no generation has had previously. They are incredible researchers. They are they're fact checkers. This happens in real time. As you're speaking to them in groups, you will sometimes see people fact checking you as you go. I remember watching The Crown on the Netflix uh, when it first came out a couple of years ago. And as an older guy, what's the first thing I'm doing? I'm fact checking each episode of The Crown. There became a cottage industry of people providing fact checking for The Crown online. This is the age we're living in. If you know that up front, it will change the way. It makes me realize that I have a higher responsibility as a dad to know why this is true, if for no other reason for my own kids, who I've got mm-hmm. access to a lot of noise. We have to be able to respond to the noise. Well, this book, So the Next Generation Will Know, written by my friends Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace, my guest today, will give parents, youth pastors, anyone, practical ways of trying to not only show people, young people, why Christianity is true, but giving them good reasons to stay in Christianity when they may be tempted to bolt. And so we're going to go through some of those strategies, some of those tactics right after the break. You're listening to Cross Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the Cross Examined podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our guest today, Jay Warner Wallace, a cold case homicide detective of coldcasechristianity.com. And Sean McDowell, who, as you know, has written several books, including updating the famous... Uh, Evidence Demands a Verdict, a book that helped bring me to faith many years ago. He and his uh, father, Josh McDowell, have, have updated that. And now Sean has teamed up with Jim to write, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. It's just out this week. I've got a copy in my hands right here. It's a very practical book. This is not theology, deep theology. It's not apologetics that you can't understand. This is practical stuff that you can use with any young person or even some older people uh, in today's generation that you that you can help these people uh, not only know why Christianity is true, but help them know why they should stay Christians when they're tempted to walk away from Christianity, particularly when they get out on their own. Now, uh, gentlemen, I've noticed that the book uh, is really centered around the issue of love, believe it or not. Virtually every chapter has something to do with love. Sean, let me start with you. Why is that the theme throughout this book? 
Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. First off is we opened with a chapter called Love Sacrifices. Uh-huh. And we kind of make the point that we sacrifice for what we love. I was sitting in Starbucks with my son about two, three years ago, who was about three or four at the time. And this guy leaned over and he goes, you know, good for you. And I said, good for me. What? He goes, I sacrificed a ton for my kids growing up and it cost me a ton of money. I wouldn't change it for the world. And it hit me. I'm like, if we care about this generation, we have to sacrifice some of our own desires and wants to step in their life and minister to them. So looking at this generation should be through the lens of love. Now, one of the other reasons is, is Jay and I are both apologists. So we are known for doing more apologetic work, and we're trying to write this book to reach an audience outside of the apologetics world. Mm. So for me, I also do a, I do a ton with kind of youth ministry world. And what I found is in the apologetics world, everybody's like, truth, 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 give them an argument, give them a Christian worldview. Right. And then youth ministry world, it's like relationship, experience. And we're looking at this saying, it's actually both. Mm-hmm. We have to give them truth and a biblical worldview, but not to win an argument because we love them and should be willing to sacrifice for this generation. So that's why we approached it that way. Well, you guys have done a fabulous job. It's a very easy read, and there's a lot of practical strategies in here. But before we get into some of those strategies, Jim, you've done, I know personally, a lot of research on uh, the younger generation, say Gen Z, which I think would would go anywhere from what, born the year 2000 to to, uh, 2015 or so? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a broad, it's hard to find margins here, but I would yeah. say if you've got a teenager or a pre-teenager, you've got someone in your life who's Gen Z. Okay, now, I'm looking at page 81 of the book here, and again, the book is called So the Next Generation Will Know by Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace, and uh, you kind of survey a series of beliefs here about what this generation believes. Can you kind of give us an overview of what the generation believes according to survey data? Yeah, so this is something that, that is fascinating to me because you, we have anecdotal kind of experiences, right, as teachers, as youth pastors, and as yep. parents. And to see the broader kind of surveys that are done, I think is eye-opening. You might think, because you have a teenager in your life, that you already know everything there is to know or you need to know about Gen Z. And that's true. There's a spectrum. So it's always like we're, we, we hesitated, right, when we wrote this part of the book. To, to put these broad labels on, on, on these folks, because there's always a range in that, of course, and there are anomalies on either side. So I just want to give you the generalities. But I do think we know that technology shaped all of us. Our experience, my experience being raised in the 60s and 70s with technology that my parents didn't have had an impact on the way I see the world. I mean, look, just, can you imagine living in a world before there were even telephone communication? Hmm. I can remember my grandparents talking about how they thought that the telephones would be the end of all relationships as we know them because people didn't care to be in front of each other anymore. They could just communicate on that on that you know wired landline. Well, really, I mean that gene's not going back in the bottle. Either is the technology we have today. It's not going back in the bottle. We got to decide: is it something we're going to resist or embrace? And I think the one thing you see that's most commonly described with this generation is that they are digital natives. They were Mm. raised in the context of a digital world. And really, that means a lot. It means a lot in terms of how we interact interact socially. I want you to think about this for a second. We also discovered from the research that this is the loneliest generation. And you might Mm -hmm. think, how in the world can that be possible, given that they have more immediate access to their friends on an Internet platform, right, social media? 
But I want you to think about this for a second. Relationships are intensely geographic in the sense that you have to be in the physical proximity of somebody to really have the kind of relationship you're thinking about when you use that word. When we say we, we walk with someone through the stages of life or through different chapters in your life together, that metaphor draws on the idea that you are in the physical presence of somebody walking with them. You can't have me on your social media, on your phone, and say you're really walking with me, even though you might have my, the phone in your hand as you're walking. There is something different about physical proximity that builds into relationships. And that, I think, is very important to understand. Like, what do they say? 80% of all communication is nonverbal. And even a video chat isn't going to get it to you. You have to see that my body English, the way I embrace certain ideas physically, the way I react physically, even touch amongst friends is something that we see as part of the relationship context. If you take that out, you end up with a form, a, a word you can use. You can say I have relationships with people, but they really are lacking perhaps the most key ingredient, which is just physical proximity to the person with which you have a relationship. Now, why does that matter? Because you also find doing the work on this generation that they are the least trusting, even though they have access to tons of information. Well, it turns out that physical proximity can actually help you in the trust category also, because I might be able to get a truth claim off, off my, an online source, but if I'm the person who is, has physical, you, you as a parent, you have physical proximity to your kids, and you have the ability to develop the relationship that that kind of proximity allows you to have that gives you an authority in their lives. One of the things that Sean didn't finish, and I want you to finish that, Sean, years later when Sean went back to his dad, and said, hey, I know when you told me that years ago, but what were you really thinking? I want Sean to finish that story for you. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, so this must have been, I don't know, two or three years ago. I, I was starting to see my life differently with kids and revisited that questioning period. So I just went to my dad. I said, hey, Dad, honestly, what was really going through your mind when I said, I'm not sure that I believe this? Were you kind of worried I was going to jettison my faith? And he goes, no, I wasn't worried. And I said, why? He said, because of the depth of relationship that we had. Mm. And for somebody who's an apologist, you might expect him to say, well, because the evidence for the resurrection is so solid, or the number of manuscripts, or the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. He didn't say those things. What he mentioned was relationship. And that's really, you asked the question about Gen Z, that's a lot of what the data shows about this generation. I was just reading a book that came out by Oxford Press last year called The Next Mormons, and it's a study of kind of older Gen Zers and their views of Mormonism. And what you see within Gen Z is there are certain trends that go across demographics that used to be distinct in the past. So what you see change with younger, uh, say, Mormons, for example, is very similar to what you would see in other demographics, in some ways internationally now, globally. And one thing they said is that younger Mormons are skeptical of the bigger institutions and the LDS church as a whole, mm. but they tend to listen to people that are closer to them in relationship, like their local bishop or ward. And that's the trend as a whole that the research is showing, which is why, as, as Jim was talking about, building relationships with this generation is really one of the most powerful ways to get trust with them. Because think about the way technology, you know, Jim mentioned that this is a digitally native generation. Their technology, they have an infinite, essentially, number of voices speaking into them, believe this, buy this, trust this. 
well, who are they going to listen to? And one way to get them to listen is to build a close relationship with them. So that's why we frame this book about love, because that loving relationship really gives us the platform and ability to even speak into their lives. So if I'm and, following and, you guys, and right. Thing, Rich, let me add to that for a second. Yeah. That's so important what Sean just said. You mm-hmm. know, when you go search online and use a search engine to find out, you know, characteristics of Gen Z, if you just mm-hmm. did that right now, you would find that the vast majority of surveys and research on Gen Z is not done by sociologists and, and people like us who, who are concerned about the future of the church. It's done by marketing companies mm-hmm. who want to sell to Gen Z. So they are doing deep dive research to see, well, what's the nature of this generation and how can I use that to advance my opportunities to sell them something? That is by far the the largest number of surveys that I have seen online. I think this generation gets that and they're tired of being targeted for sales. And what breaks that, that, that experience for them, what breaks that perception, I think, is that if we are the kind of people who are willing and this, this is true for any age group. I mean, look, you know my dad has not been a believer of growing up. He never was. Uh, and I knew that during that period of time when he would not listen to my explanations of the gospel, he's heard it a thousand times, the truth claim was falling on deaf, ear, deaf ears. I needed instead to build the relationship that would give me the equity to speak that to him. Mm. And so yeah, well, I, it's that combination it, it, of relationship and truth. It really seems to me that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the real cash value of what you guys are saying to parents right now might be that despite the fact that you think you've lost your kid to to his, his or her cell phone, the fact that you're in close proximity, physical proximity to that kid, you have more power to influence that kid than anything off their cell phone if you take the proper steps to build the relationship because you are in physical proximity to that kid. And the relationship is so much more robust, robust, so much more complete when you are physically there, despite the fact that kids are bombarded with information from all sorts of sources, mostly through their cell phone, the parent still has more sway over the child than they think they do. Is that a fair statement? If I could jump in here, I would say, yes, that is, but it's the relationship with boundaries. One thing okay. that surprised me, I, I'm curious if you feel this way about the research, Jim, is we came across a number of studies where this generation said, we actually want caring adults, at least a significant number of this generation, right. to give us boundaries on technology use and safe surfing the internet. Because I mm-hmm. saw this week, and it kind of made me chuckle, that even Madonna said she gave one of her teenagers a smartphone, and it wrecked their relationship. Mm-hmm. It wrecked it. So her younger ones, even Madonna's like, I'm not giving them a smartphone. So yes, that relationship is huge. Like you said, Frank, we have to focus on that and build that because of the proximity. But somebody well, can be physically close and emotionally distant. So that's right. Well, let's talk about what a parent or a youth pastor or just a friend can do to influence a young person in Generation Z. When we come back, we're talking to Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace, their new book, So the Next Generation Will Know. You're not going to want to miss the next two segments. We'll get into it. You need to get the book as well. You can get it at crossexamine.org, Amazon, anywhere else you can get books. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. You want to reach your young person for Christ, how do you do it? We're going to get into it in just a minute. But if you want to reach a broader audience for Christ and you have some presentation skills, you may want to attend the 12th Annual Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, this year in August. It'll be in the Big Apple in New York City. Forgot about it. It's going to be in Brooklyn. And if you want to be a part of it, you need to apply before June 15th. Go to crossexamine.org, click on events. You'll see CIA there. We've got a full lineup of uh, great uh, trainers and speakers. You want to be a part of it for three full days in New York City. It's not cheap, but it is worth it. And we've had people come back to CIA two, three, four, five, six times because they get so much out of it. Not only will we present to you, you'll present to us, and we'll try and help you improve your presentation and question-answering skills. So check that out. CIA, it's this August 8th to 10, but you need to apply soon. We don't take everybody. And uh, we have to limit it to about 60 people because if it gets bigger than that, we don't have enough instructors to train you. So uh, you need to sign up quite soon. All right. We're talking to my friends, Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell, their brand new book, not a huge book, a very helpful book, a very practical book, a book you can get through in a few hours called So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. So let's just start at the top, gentlemen. We'll start with uh, Jim. Jim. You got a young person, you're a, a parent, um, you want to know where to start with him or her to try and ground them in Christianity. Give us a couple of ideas. What can you do to help get them to know the, the Christian worldview is true and really get them to care that it's true as well? well that's a great question. And that's why we wrote the book. I mean, look, you, you just said it. It's a, it's a short book because we. It's, I think it's robust and it's, it's packed with information, but we knew that parents, if you're like me, the last thing I want to hear is, number one, I've been doing it all wrong. And number two, is a bunch of new stuff I need to add to my life in order to do this right. Well, first of all, um, Sean and I are very, very uh, open about the fact that we haven't been doing it all right. I mean, we're like you. We're like everybody else. The fact that you might be an apologist means you might have a strength in this area. But listen, it doesn't mean that we've done a, a great job necessarily. Uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. And you can become wise by either learning from your own mistakes or from the mistakes of others. Mm-hmm. So we hope that the mistakes we've made will prevent you from making your own. But but what we're trying to do in this book is rather than give you a bunch of stuff now that you have to add to your life, this another burden for all of this, is we want you instead to work smarter rather than work harder. So what we mean by that is that we want to, to provide you with um, strategies that are really already available to you. You've just been kind of like walking by them and maybe not have noticing that there's opportunities are there to leverage a, uh, an event, to leverage um, a, a, some kind of media consumption if you're watching a movie or listening to a song, the things that are already in your life that you can now turn toward. And I'll just give you the, the first the one that I think that hopefully is, we talk about this in, uh, over a course of a couple of chapters to give you uh, how to apply this, but 
one of the things we always talk about, and this is something that Sean wrote a whole book with his dad about this, and I've kind of just leveraged it down to, to a, a simpler approach that I used with my own kids as a youth pastor, and that is that I stopped just talking about what is true, and I shifted toward two whys for every what. And the two whys, I just I knew I could do a lot more than just two if I wanted to, but I knew I needed to get down to the simplest way that I could even incorporate it as a as a parent. So in other words, instead of just saying, here's what is true about God, about the Bible, about what the Bible teaches, about the nature of Jesus, whatever it may be, instead of just providing the data, blah, 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 I started it to provide number one, well, why is this true evidentially? If you're making a claim about the nature of God, Maybe we'll use the scripture to provide evidence for this, or but we probably could also use good evidence outside of the Bible to make some of our claims. And I wanted to be aware of what that evidence was and leverage that as well. And then the second why is that once I've told you what is true and given you a reason to believe it evidentially, you still may have the question, and I think our young people inevitably will have the question, why does it matter to me? I've got to be able to argue for not just that it's true and here's why it's true, but here's why it matters to you. Or it ought to. Listen, I, when I was a youth pastor, I was an older youth pastor in my area. Right, I was forty before I started, and I felt like I was, I, you know, I needed to. I, I felt disconnected sometimes. I wasn't a surfer. I wasn't a skateboarder. I wasn't going to do those things because getting injured off duty is not as smart as getting injured on duty. They pay two <laughs> different ways. Okay, so I wasn't going to get involved in those activities. But I was passionate, and I was energized. And I knew if I provided the whys that go along with the what, I could help energize my group and make it applicable to them. Now, if you're a parent listening to this, all you have to do is think to yourself, you're used to making lots of what claims about nature of morality, certain behaviors. Now just add the two whys for every what. You will see a difference in your conversation. Okay, but why is that important? Give me two whys. Okay, well, let's just give you a... Let me Sean, give you a, 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 Sean a train, you do it. A, Come on, give me two whys. You only gave me one, man. You violate your own standard. Well, let's look at this this way. I used to make lots of esoteric claims about about God's nature. And I was thinking about this the other day when somebody asked me this question. Okay, so I used to always, like, make a case for the divinity of Christ Mm -hmm. or for the triune nature of God. Okay, that's a pretty esoteric. Okay, great. On the basis of what evidence can I argue that God is triune? I have to be able to argue what the evidence is, both in Scripture, because the word Trinity is never used in Scripture. So I have to be able to make the case from Scripture. But also, I think I can make the case philosophically. If God is love, why the triune nature of God defines him as the God who is love? Yeah, but But the teenager doesn't care at this point. So, So why does it matter? Let me ask Sean, because he's like getting bored over there, Jim. Why is it important? Let's let's take the Trinity. Let's let's just use the Trinity as an example. That's a good example. Give me two whys as to why the kid should care. Oh man, now you're putting me on the spot to defend I am. This is really hard to do. No, I here, here's what I would say. Mm-hmm. I'd say number one, why is this important? Because this is some of the leading ways that Muslims, for example, criticize the faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They criticize it distinctly. So if we're going to be able to defend and articulate our faith, we better get it right. But why does it matter for my life? Mm-hmm. I think the Trinity is a beautiful example of what it means to be made in God's image, that God is relational in his very being. And when we understand that God is relational, we start to realize that to love God is to be in relationship with this triune God. And this is unique to Christianity. 
so I have actually walked through my students when I teach in the Trinity and help them see, like, you look in movies and you look in culture, even the recent Endgame movie, really what it's all about is relationships, about mm. people and sacrificing for those that you love. Our deepest desire is for relationships. Well, it's only in Christianity where God is relational, where he's a person. And being made in his image, we're made for relationships. So loving God and loving other people, we can only really do this when we understand who God is. That's the kind of conversation I would have with a kid to make it sink in. But let me give you another example. I was teaching just a few weekends ago uh, with my dad. We're doing a weekend event on biblical sexuality, and this mom brought her son up who was 13. And she said, he has something he wants to tell you. I said, great. This 13, maybe 14-year-old kid, he goes, you know, I've been told my whole life that the Bible teaches I shouldn't be sexually involved and that pornography is wrong. But I didn't really understand why. Now I understand why. And I thought in that kid's life, it just went from an idea that he had in his mind to something very practical that he could live out in relationships. So that why is what makes the what, so to speak, I think really take hold in a kid's heart and a kid's life. That's always been important, but especially today when this is such an experiential-based culture, if it's just mm -hmm. an idea in their mind, it's not going to shape the way they live. Well, Sean, uh, I know your dad has done a lot of work on the pornography issue because it is so epidemic, even among Christians, as you and Jim point out in the new book, So the Next Generation Will Know. That's who we're talking to right now, friends. We're talking to Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, Sean, just give us a why as to why it's important to not indulge in pornography. That's a good question because it's so often not spoken of. And yet many young people are involved in it. Maybe older people are involved in it. Why is it? Why? What, what does a parent say to a young person? Why, sh why shouldn't they do this? Here's what I would say if a young person asked me that. I would ask the question back, and I would say, do you want to have loving, intimate relationships with people? Mm -hmm. And I've never had a young person say, nah, I don't care about relationships. I'd say, okay. Then if we want to have loving, deep relationships with people, we have to know what it means to love people, right? They would say yes. I'd say, well... St. Augustine, this thinker from a long time ago, said the reality is we are called by God to use money and love people. But the reality is we love money and we use people. Mm. Money causes us to use people rather than love them. The same thing is true with pornography. Studies show, and I can back this up, that the more somebody looks at pornography, the more somebody becomes an object, a commodity that they use for their own pleasure and good, rather than a human being that you love. So if you want to learn to love people for who they are, why would you indulge yourself in an activity that is teaching you to use people? Mm. That's what I would say. Okay. Jim, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think this is so important because he just gave you the second why, right? I mean, how does mm -hmm. this flesh out in your own life? How does, how does this affect your own relationships? The people who are most involved in pornography are the least connected, and you're absolutely right. They tend to objectify, and so now they bring that into their relationships. Not only that, I think that, 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 that for, for boys, they begin to expect these behaviors, and then for girls, they start to model what they think the boys expect. 
I think we are changing the nature of culture altogether. And and again, we're moving further and further away from the biblical model. And when 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 he said he, he hit it, I think Sean hit it perfectly when he said that this idea that we are relational. Why do you care how many likes you get on Instagram? You care because you are designed in the image of a relational God who has been in the eternal relationship with the, the Holy Spirit and with Jesus as a triune God. He is uniquely. Qualified, he, God is love because He's been in an eternal love relationship. As Augustine said, the lover, the beloved, and the spirit of love between them. And you also sense that in your own life. Why do you chase that? Now, what the difference is is that in the Trinity, all three are of equal standing. This is why the Scripture says not to be unequally yoked, because in the Trinity there's an equal yoke, right? Because we have mm-hmm. you are God in all three persons. When you connect yourself to people who are not equal in your view of God, you are not experiencing the triune kind of relationship that God experiences. This is why we call you to be equally yoked, because if you want to be that kind, if you want to have that kind of experience in life, you have to you understand, number one, you are wired to do this. But also, you're called to find people who have equal values hmm. and understand the world the way that you understand it if you want to be equally yoked. So I think there's some good whys in there that, that you might think, well, I want to just focus as a youth pastor on how my kids should behave. But unless you can ground this first in a theological premise that is supported evidentially, good luck trying to get that outcome. Yeah, you got to get the wise. Two wise for every what. That's one of the recommendations in the new book by Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell. So the next generation will know you need to pick up a copy, and we're going to have more strategies with them in just a couple of minutes. Don't go away. I'm Frank Turek, back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. So the next generation will know, not just the next generation, so your kid will know. How about that? In fact, this book could be titled Tactics for Dealing with Christian Teenagers. It could be titled that. It could be titled Very Practical Ideas that Parents and Youth Pastors Can Use to help young people know Christ and stay in Christ. But that would be too long. So the name of the book is So the Next Generation Will Know Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And there are so many practical ideas in here. We've just scratched the surface. But uh, let me start with you, Sean. Um, Jim earlier was mentioning, look, we don't want to give you a whole bunch of new ideas you have to add into your life. The ideas that you're giving are ideas that just cause you to have to pay attention a little bit more. You don't have to do any new activities or learn a whole bunch of new tactics or new ideas. You just got to pay attention a little bit more and find those opportunities when they arise. Can you give us a couple of examples, Sean McDowell? Yeah, that's exactly right. The last thing we want to do is give parents or youth pastors some new program they need to add. Rather, we're kind of basing our thoughts on what arguably could be a central passage in the Old Testament. If you look at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, of course, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And Moses says, Love, Lord God, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Repeat these to your kids. Then it says, Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. You see, people already sit in their houses for dinner. They already travel or walk along the road. We already put our kids to sleep, and we already wake up in the morning. What Moses is saying is not add a new program, but take the things you're already doing in your life routine 
and make speaking and teaching and talking about God a regular part of this. So the whole premise of this book is to just encourage anyone who cares about this next generation to look more intentionally at the way they're already living their lives and say, what are some things I could do to help this generation learn to think and live Christianly? So here's a couple of practical examples. My son came to me a while ago. He turned 15, and he wanted to see this movie, uh, The Bohemian Rhapsody, about the rock band Queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, some of his friends were talking about it. And I looked at it, and I'll, you know, it's PG-13. There's some ideas in there that I think they're pushing a little bit of an agenda. But I looked at it, I'm like, you know what? We could see this. So I went to my son. I said, here's the deal. I'm happy to take you and a friend whose parent is fine with this. If you just agree when we're done, we'll just come home, and we're just going to talk about it. I'm not going to lecture you, but I want to know what you see. How is Christianity represented? How should we think about this film? What's good in the film? What concerns us about the film? And he agreed. So we went to the movie, came home, sat at the dining room table, probably 20 or 30 minutes, and just talked about it. And I thought, man, had I not been thinking in that fashion, I would have missed an opportunity. So here's another easy one. If you're just going to the store, you got to run and pick something up. Grab one of your kids and just say, hey, come with me. And it's not that you have to give them a lecture on the Trinity. Some of this is just relational. If you like to work out, is there one of your kids or a kid in your church or a young person in the neighborhood that likes to exercise? And maybe that gives you a chance to relate to them. So we're just trying to encourage people to be more intentional. And we give a lot of practical ideas about how these opportunities are right in front of us if we'll just take them. In fact, you say here on page 29, again, friends, the book is called So the Next Generation Will Know. One thing you can ask uh, your young person after you go to church you can say, of all the things the pastor said today, what seemed to be the most difficult to believe? And then just have a conversation because the kids think in that anyway, you might as well get the idea out on the table so it can be discussed. And you want to have it in a way that isn't condemning. You just want to have a conversation about it because you want to talk about these issues before an atheist or one of their friends talks about it. You want to be the one to bring it up. You want to be the one that they feel that they can go to that, that your, your young person feels they can come to you and talk about these issues. Jim, give us another idea or two that parents or youth pastors can use to try and uh, encourage their young person to know why Christianity is true and stay in it when the, when the going gets difficult. Well, even that question we just asked, right? Which of these ideas represented in that sermon today do you think was the hardest to believe? You could ask mm-hmm. that question of anything. Which, mm-hmm. which idea do you think that was promoted by this movie? is the easiest for us to believe or the most difficult for us to believe. I mean, this is what we're talking about. You know, when I was, before I became a Christian, I, I attributed everything in my life to just chance and physics, right? I mean, I, there were no such things as miracles or God's divine intervention. I didn't believe in those things. And even a couple of years after being a Christian, it was hard for me to recalibrate my life to even start to notice things that I might attribute to God. But over a period of time, I realized, you know, that's actually the best inference for that is that's God acting you know, here or there. I, I started to become sensitive to the actions of God in my life. And the same way what we're saying here is you could have, up to this point have missed a number of opportunities to have the kinds of conversations that make a difference. But if you, you know, become sensitive to them, that's why we describe so many different ways to have these in the book. We want you to start to see this in your own life. So you go, oh, that's exactly what they were talking about. And now I can just launch in that area. Like a lot of this, is us transferring passion mm. to our kids. And you already have done that if you're a parent. It may be that you're passionate about a uh, particular restaurant 
or a particular series of movies, like the Marvel comic movies, right? And you have passed that passion on so that you say things like, hey, guess what? This movie is opening next Thursday, and we, I got tickets. We get to go. And that's the kind of energy you talk about. Or you get to go to the Rockets game, or you get to go to the Warriors game. You say, we get to go. When's the last time you ever talked about anything with God that has to do with God with that kind of passion? Mm-hmm. Well, we transfer passion even without thinking about it. And so we've already done that in several areas with our kids. All we're suggesting is don't add another thing. Just reprioritize. See the things you're already doing and find a way to orient them toward the things of God. I don't know if you guys have seen this article, but it's been around the Internet this week that a young person over in Malaysia actually committed suicide based on an Instagram poll that people said more people said she should die than she should live. She, now, obviously, she was depressed and she killed herself. And and the the um, the secular ethic or the secular worldview, the Darwinian worldview tells these young people there is no real purpose to life. We're just overgrown germs. We're all just going to die and become worm food. There's really no meaning in life. And there will be some on the Internet that will encourage young people to actually just pull the plug, or kill themselves, do whatever. If if a young person were to ever come up to you and and say to you, Dad, what's the meaning of life? Why are we even here? Sean, what would you tell them? You know what I would do? I would ask that young person a question back. Mm-hmm. I would say, gosh, that's a great question. That's the biggest question people have been asking. Tell me why that question is on your heart and your mind right now. Mm-hmm. You see, I think questions are almost always better than an answer. Now, I'm not evading the question. I'm happy to tell them what I think. But I want to know why a young person all of a sudden is asking these huge questions. Maybe they saw the post you're talking about where this kid committed suicide, and they started thinking, gosh, maybe I is life even worth it? Maybe that's easier. Or maybe they just saw some song or YouTube or a professor said it. I want to know what's at the heart of it right. to make sure I'm answering the right question. And in a sense, in the book, we talk about timely approaches and timeless ones. Asking questions today is so important. It enables us to build a relationship with this generation, to have conversations, which they need, number one, for their mental health, just these face-to-face conversations, but also in a way in passing on the faith. Now, this is timeless because this is what Jesus did. Jesus asked questions even when he knew the answer. So part of what we're doing in this book is shifting, getting people to just think differently. How do I build this relationship? How, rather than getting across the information I want, do I meet this young person where they're at and minister to them based on the questions they're really asking? Now, Jim, we just got about a minute to go before we really need to wrap it up. But if someone were to ever come to you and say that, what is the real purpose of life? And you would ask them, well, why do you ask that? And they, they just want to know, what would you say? Well, I think about this. If you had an object in your hand that was something bizarre you'd never seen before, and you were to speak to someone ask you, what's the purpose of this object? Mm-hmm. Well, I think most young people would say, well, give me a minute, and they'd look for some kind of identifying mark on that object, and then they would search for it online. And they'd be looking for pictures of that object. When they find it, they would go, okay, let's go to that manufacturer's website, and let's see what the manufacturer says about that object. And they'll discover that, that the, the manufacturer is telling you what the purpose of this device is. Well, this is always the case. If you have a question about what the purpose of something is, return to the manufacturer to see what the manufacturer tells us. If we are designed in the image of God, our purpose is to be found in the writings of the manufacturer. And that's not surprising, right? I mean, that's what we, we, all, we already know that instinctively. 
And so I can look now. I've got a place to go. And now I can. Now I've actually made a case for why uh, understanding the Christian worldview is so important. Why searching through Scripture to get, to get this answer is so important. You've got a question about your purpose, and the only way you'll ever know your purpose is to return to the manufacturer to see why am I here. And so I think that's part of what we make the case for with our kids. And those kinds of conversations you're talking about are exactly what we're talking about in the book, the kinds of organic conversations that just come from watching something, seeing something happen right in front of your eyes. That article you talked about with the suicide is an important launching point to talk about the nature of relationships, why we would care Mm. what people online we have never physically seen think about our situation. Why do we do that? Because we are designed as communal, as, as, as relational beings in the image of God. The only question is, have we misplaced the relationships and misinterpreted mm-hmm. what we call relationship today? And that's part of the conversation you can have with your kids if you're paying attention to the current events that you can then leverage in the conversation. Well, that's Sean McDowell and Jay Water Wallace, ladies and gentlemen. Their new book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World, is a must-read. You need to get it. You need to read it. You need to apply it. That's the most important thing. And these tactics are easy to apply. They're just doing what you're already doing, but just adding a little bit of uh, – of, uh, of attention to these things you're already doing. Just asking a few questions here or there, just being a little bit more deliberate about your relationship with these young people. And if you do, you not only can keep people in Christianity, you might even be able to save a life because a lot of young people today are lonely. They only are... They only think their purpose is on social media, and that's not the case. So get the book, ladies and gentlemen, so the next generation will know by Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace. Sean's website, seanmcdowell.org, Jay Warner Wallace, coldcasechristianity.com. In fact, Jim and I in a month are going to be out with Mike Adams in California, Santa Fe, for a Fearless Faith Conference. You can see us there. This weekend, I'm going to be down in Miami, near Miami, Florida, at Calvary Church in Miramar. You can see me there on Sunday, and for a Sunday night, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation and we'll be back here next week for another edition of cross-examine with frank turek on the american family radio network i'll see you then god bless we hope you got a lot of value out of this episode if you think our podcast needs to reach more people here's what you can do to help Go to iTunes and type Cross-Examined Official Podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless. God bless.